Thank you, Frank. The passage he just read is uh, part of the text from which I want to speak today. And the question I have to pose to you today is, how can you know? How can you know that you're really a, really a Christian? Uh, how can you have assurance of your salvation? And this is something that I think ties in greatly with what Carlton's been preaching on as he's been going through the book of John. Um, so to introduce that, I want to tell you about a man who was born a long time ago. He was born shortly after Christ was born. And uh, he became one of the 12 disciples. He uh, walked very closely with Jesus. In fact, he became Jesus' best friend. So think of that as we look into this text today. That This was probably the best friend that Christ had while he was on earth. He became one of the 12 disciples. He became one of the inner circle of three with his brother James and Peter. And um, probably no one since Adam has had a closer relationship with God than this man. He experienced the entire earthly ministry of Christ. He was the only disciple present at, the, at his death on the cross. He knew and uh, conversed with the resurrected Christ. He was one of the founding apostles of the bride, of his bride, the church. And uh, he was so close to Christ that Christ entrusted his mother to him. Christ gave his mother to him at the cross and asked that he take care of her, knowing that he was leaving. Uh, later in life, he was used by God to inspire and write some of the most clear and profound scriptures that we have. Uh, he wrote the fourth gospel, which is one of the most unique gospels. It's not the same as the other three. It sees God and Christ in a different perspective, proving the deity of Christ uh, from a very unique spiritual and theological uh, viewpoint. Later, as an old man, he's in his 80s or 90s, God now inspires him to write a letter, a letter to the young church. He was probably the head of the church at Ephesus at the time, and uh, God used him to write this little epistle uh, to the struggling church there. And he wrote in a very powerful apostolic authority. He wrote clearly with conviction, but he also wrote very lovingly, very personal, in a pastoral style as to tender young children of God. And this man's name, of course, was John. John Boanerges is his full name. John meaning Jehovah is gracious, and Boanerges meaning son of thunder which was what uh, Christ gave him. And so we see tension there, even in his name. Jehovah has been gracious, son of thunder. So if anybody was ever qualified to speak about what it means to have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, don't you think John was that person? Can you think of anybody who's more qualified to speak on what does it mean to have a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ than John? So today I want to focus on what is the letter of assurance? And that is 1 John. Uh, and I know a lot of you just took a deep breath. We can't cover the whole book of 1 John. This is going to be a jet tour, an overview of the book of 1 John. Well, open your Bibles with me and let's look first at the uh, very beginning of the book of 1 John, where John begins his letter the same as he does his gospel. And that is with a prologue or an introductory statement where he proclaims what 
is the subject at hand that he's going to be addressing. So beginning in verse 1, chapter 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So here John uses that unique term for Jesus, which is the logos, the word, the word of life here. And, um, and the same as his gospel, he lays the foundation for what he's going to be speaking on, and that is the reality of Jesus Christ. And you see here that he makes Jesus synonymous with what term? We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So Jesus Christ, a person, is the eternal life. You remember in John 17, 3, in the uh, priestly prayer when Christ is praying to the Father? He, how does he define eternal life there? He defines eternal life, and this is eternal life that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So, in his gospel, Jesus defines eternal life as knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of God the Father and through Jesus Christ his Son. Here in his epistle, he defines eternal life as himself. He's saying that he is eternal life. And so, just as a backdrop, think of 1 John in overview as defining God in three ways. In fact, there are many, many sets of threes throughout the book of 1 John. But we can see chapters 1 and 2 as an overview viewing God as light because it says there in chapter 1 that God is light, verse 5, and in him there is no darkness at all. So chapters 1 and 2 reference God as light and that we should know God as light and in doing so we are given truth for our minds. Chapters 3 and 4 God is love. Uh, again, that is defined here in 1 John. God is love, and as we know the love of God, we have love for our hearts to spread to our fellow man. And then thirdly, chapter 5, which Frank read from, is a summary statement, really, of the whole book, and defines God as life. Again, we're back to the concept of life, and as we know the life of God, we have holiness or righteousness for our wills, to live out in our lives. So, stop and think with me a minute and be honest. How many of you have ever had doubts about your salvation? Have you ever wished for assurance in your salvation? Have you ever thought about the surety of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you ever had any struggles with that? Or do you know people who do? Um, have you ever heard people who profess to be a Christian say things like, when, when asked if, how would they know that they're going to heaven or how do they know that they're saved or some question like that, they'll say things like what? Well, I hope so. Or, well, you know, you can't really know for sure, but I'm trying to live as good a life as I can and just trust God to work it out in the end. Uh, or, uh, I heard somebody say here recently to me, well, in, in speaking of the death of a, of a godly saint, he said, well, if he didn't make it to heaven, none of the rest of us have a chance. So what does that imply? That God grades on a scale, right? And so that our hope is based upon who? Us and how well we live. So 
But of course, we know that not to be true. But in reality, do you have struggles? Do you have doubts? Do you ever lack for assurance? Is it normal for a Christian to doubt their salvation? And perhaps a better way to put it, is it common? Well, I think it is. I think if we're honest, we'd all have to admit that every believer has had doubts at one time or another. Um, I don't think it's possible to go through the Christian life without doubting your salvation. Um, but So that's, that's just a statement of fact. The real issue is why. Why do we doubt our salvation? Why do we have doubts? And how can we have assurance? How can we remove the doubts and have assurance that we truly are his and we truly live in the knowledge of being saved? Well, what, let's divide up three categories of why people might have doubts about their salvation. Number one, of course, is what? They might not be saved. You know, if you're lost, you should have doubts about something that's not true. So category number one is people have doubts because they're truly not saved. They're not really Christians. Um, so what's the solution there? How do you deal with that doubt? Well, obviously, what? You come to Christ. You, know, you repent of your trust in yourself and you believe or trust in Jesus. Um, but all of us should be about checking to be sure that we are saved. Paul instructs us to do that in 2 Corinthians 13.5. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. That is an ongoing, present, active verb. That is not something that you do once and then you forget it. It's ongoing. Jonathan Edwards said, Assurance is never to be enjoyed on the basis of a past experience. Listen to this point. This is very important. There is need of the present and continuing work of the Holy Spirit in giving assurance. We'll see that none of the tests given in 1 John are based on past events or experiences. None of them. There's no test in the, gospel, in the letter of 1 John that goes back to a past experience or event. In fact, we should dismiss immediately everything that points to past events or experiences as what we use to appease our doubts. These things are used even to the point of deceiving those who are lost. People are actually lost, but they think they're Christians based on these past events or experiences. What are some of those? Number one, church membership. Two, baptism. These get a little tougher to take as we go down the list. Number three, family background. I was raised a Baptist. Uh, number four, I walked the aisle and I went forward in service. Number five, I made some type of commitment. Profession of faith, rededicated my life. Some type of commitment was made at a point in time in the past. Number six, prayer. This is getting more serious here. I prayed the sinner's prayer. Number seven, testimony of others. My preacher told me I was saved. I went down. I talked to the preacher. The preacher, when we got finished, he told me I was saved. So I know I'm saved. One time I was in a meeting at another church, and the minister was asking the group, what are some assurance texts that we can use to help people in visitation if they have problems with assurance of their salvation. And I said that one I thought that was very important is John six forty seven. 
John chapter 6, verse 47. Let's turn and look at it because I think this is very important. It's a very simple, very clear little verse that I think we all need to focus on and remember when we come to the issue of doubt. Jesus is speaking here. These, these words, if you have a red letter Bible, they're in red. They're the voice of Jesus Christ himself as he's teaching on himself as the eternal life. John, John 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. The verb for believe is present tense active voice. So the qualifier for having eternal life is a present practice of trust in Jesus Christ. A present practice of trust in Jesus Christ. And the result is a present possession of eternal life in Jesus Christ. The state of eternal life now. Not when we die, but now. We have eternal life now, not just later in glory. So the good news is that if you are currently trusting, if you are currently trusting in Jesus Christ, then on the authority of God himself, you can know that you have eternal life if you're currently trusting in Jesus Christ. God himself in the flesh said it. You can take his word on it. I don't know what greater word it is than if God, if, if doubt comes into your mind and you can say, God says I'm saved. God says I'm saved because I am currently trusting in no one, in nothing, except Christ and Christ alone. And I am currently trusting in that and that alone for my salvation. Therefore, on the authority of Jesus Christ and his word, I have currently, I have eternal life. But the bad word about that is, the bad news is, if you're basing your salvation on any past event, if you're basing your salvation on anything that you did in the past, in other words, if when you have doubt, you try to assuage that doubt or appease that doubt based on something that happened to you in the past, then the bad news is that you currently may not have eternal life. In fact, if that is your trust, something in the past, then I can say that you don't have eternal life. The Navigators had a simple illustration that they used to use a long time ago on college campuses called the Gospel Train. They had a train. It was a locomotive, a coal car, and a caboose. The locomotive was labeled fact. The coal car was labeled faith. The caboose was labeled feelings. So they're talking about that the gospel and our salvation based on the gospel is based on that gospel train. So number one, it's based on what? The fact. Jesus Christ is God. John wrote his gospel for that reason. John 20, 31, John 20, verse 31, says that he wrote his gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So based on that fact, we're saved. And we're saved through or by faith. That's the coal car that feeds the engine. But feelings are just along for the ride. So sometimes we have doubts that aren't necessarily related directly to the facts. So category number one is if you have doubts or lack of assurance, you may not be saved. But category number two, 
They are true Christians, but not living obediently. We can have doubts if we are Christians, but not living obediently. Often a lack of assurance may be due to sin in our life or the lack of obedience in our life. If we're walking in the flesh, dominated by sin or lust in our minds, or not in communion with God through His Word and prayer, we should expect to feel disconnected, shouldn't we? We should expect to not have a comfort or assurance of our relationship with God. Have you ever been, well, maybe not many of you were as bad a child as I was, but have you ever, do you remember times in your life as a child when you were so disobedient, so estranged from the will of your parents that you didn't feel like that they loved you, that you didn't feel like that you were really their child in intimate relationship with them? Well, I've been there. So the point is that obedience brings about assurance in the life of the believer. Go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, we read, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. All right? So that's an absolute statement. Remember, all the way through John, John deals with absolutes. He makes absolute statements like believers do not sin. That's an absolute principle, but obviously there is exception to that. So he's not dealing with the exceptions. He's dealing with the principles, the continuing patterns of our lives, not the unusual practice. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Assurance is a gift this is not in the scripture. This is me. Assurance is a gift of the Spirit of God to the obedient believer. First John addresses the relationship between obedience and assurance or our fellowship with God. But that brings us to the third category, and this is where I want to part. And that is that we could be true Christians, but we're not knowing the truth. And I put no in quotation marks. We're not knowing the truth. And I mean that either in ignorance of or not currently experiencing the truth. We might be ignorant of the truth or we're not currently experiencing the truth that we should know. So we've seen that our relationship is not based on past events. Don't let doubts come from things like that. When you have doubts and they're tied to past events, dismiss them. Like, have you ever known somebody who didn't have a birth certificate? A lot of older people don't even have birth certificates. Well, can you imagine going up to that person and saying, what's your assurance that you're alive physically? And they'd probably shake their head in amazement and say, what do you mean? I'd say, well, let me see your birth certificate. I'd say, I don't have one. I'd say, well, then how do you know you're alive? Well, what's the obvious answer? I'm alive. I'm currently breathing, living, Eating, moving, I have movement, I have growth, I exhibit principles of life. So a piece of paper is no proof of life. So likewise, a baptism, a walk of the aisle, or a past event is no proof of our salvation. So if you're not sure about when you were saved, if you can't remember exactly which time it was, 
you know, we go through a process in our growth with God. Don't let that cause doubt. Don't get me wrong. There is a point in time in which you come to the Lord now. I'm not trying to say that we just grow into our relationship with Christ. There is a point at which we become Christians. But it is normal for us to not always be sure whether that happened when we were six or when we were 16, uh, you know, because we do have things that are hard to separate between initial salvation experiences or when we rededicate ourselves to God in obedience. So, but this also means in this category, we can just be ignorant of what the truth of the scripture is about our assurance, about who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, what kind of assurance that we have because of God's own authority on the matter. If we really know what God says about assurance, then our eternal life that we possess now, it should impact our thoughts, our attitudes, our emotions, our will, and our actions. So let's look back at the book of 1 John to see that perspective. 1 John has several purpose statements in it. Several purpose statements. One of them Frank read. But the first one is here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. So in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, right after the prologue, he says, here's purpose number one why he's written this letter to the church. That includes us now. He says, in these things we write. He's representing the apostles. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete or full. So purpose number one, John writes the letter to give us assurance that we might have joy. Purpose number one is joy. Number two, chapter two, verse one. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. So purpose number two is that we not sin. Or the opposite of that statement is what? That we grow in righteousness. That we grow in obedience. That we obey God more. And then, of course, purpose number three is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. At the end of the uh, passage that Frank just read, we see the ultimate purpose statement, which is parallel to that which he gives in the gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, These things I have written to you who believe, so the book is written to believers. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So John has written this letter that we as believers will know that we have eternal life. So these themes in the book of John can be categorized into three areas, three absolutes. Number one, truths about Christ. These are theological tests that impact our minds. These are things that we know. They relate more to God. Number two is obedience to his commands. These are moral tests. What do we do? How, how do we obey or disobey? These impact our will and relate more to ourself. Number three, love for others. These are social tests. They impact our hearts and relate more to others. What are the three results of these three absolutes? Result number one, joy. Not just any joy, but joy full and complete. Full and complete joy, producing peace, intimacy with God. I don't know if you've ever heard this statement before, but think about this. Believers may have superficial sorrow, but we have central gladness or joy in our core of our being. Unbelievers 
they, unbelievers are just the opposite, aren't they? They may have superficial gladness or happiness, but in the core of their being, they have central sorrow in their souls. So our sorrow may be superficial, but our joy is to the core. It's full and complete. Result number two is that we have righteousness, holiness in living, and that produces freedom from guilt and a testimony to match the message that we take to others. And number three, the result is assurance. 1 John 5.13, written that you may know that you have eternal life. So we have assurance, security in Christ, producing confidence, powerful faith, and resulting in love for others. So, all the way through the book of 1 John, there are all sorts of little tests. And I'm just going to swing through them. We don't have time to look all these up. But there are at least 12 tests of assurance in the book of 1 John. I'm just going to sweep through them so y'all stay with me. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Question number 1. As I go through these tests, think of these as subjective in your own life. Question yourself with these 12 tests. Remember, whether or not you're saved is objective. You either are or you aren't, right? It's not on a scale. If you're trusting in Christ, if you're believing, currently believing, trusting in Christ, on the authority of God, you have eternal life. But there are subjective tests to deal with that absolute principle, that objective result. Question number one, do you enjoy fellowship with Christ and the Father? Do we know the fellowship of God and his people such that it produces joy? Isn't there something very special to you about the fellowship with other believers? I mean, when you meet someone who's a believer in Christ, there should be something very special about that fellowship. That's 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Number two, 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. Are you sensitive and serious about sin? Do you know that you have a sinful nature? Do we know that we commit sins often? Do we see our sin as God does? That's what confessing means, homo legeo, seeing it the same as God does, and confess it in repentance to obtain his ongoing forgiveness and cleansing. Number three, do, you, do we have a spirit of obedience toward God's word? That's 1 John 2, verses 3 through 11. Over time, do we see a pattern of increasing obedience in our lives? Over time, can we look back and see that we've become more and more obedient? Number four, do we practice separation and reject the evil world system? 1 John 2, verses 12 through 27. Here again, do we see things more and more through a biblical worldview and reject the things of this world? Number five, do you eagerly await and hope for Christ's return? Here's something, this is one you've got to think about. Do we really sincerely anticipate the return of Christ or do we have fear and anxiety about it but do we genuinely look for and desire his return 1 John 2 verse 28 through chapter 3 verse 3 number 6 do we see a decreasing pattern of sin in our lives 1 John 3 verses 4 through 10 although we never become sinless we should sin less we never become sinless but we should sin less especially overtly, and we see more sin in our minds and our attitudes than we do in our outlived lives. Number seven, do you see an increasing pattern of love for others? 
especially other Christians in your life? Do we see ourselves growing in love for all men, but especially those of the household of faith? That's 1 John 3, 10 through 18, and 4, 7 through 12. Do you experience answered prayer in your life? Do we know the peace of an uncondemned heart before God and the confidence of God in hearing and answering our prayers? Do we know that confidence of going before the Lord in prayer and knowing that he hears us? And not ever, do you ever hear people saying, well, I don't know if my prayers make it through the ceiling. Well, I know God hears my prayers, but not because of me. It's not my worth. It's not who I am. It's because that Christ stands as my advocate. I have an advocate before the Father. And the Father will hear his Son. And so he intercedes for me, even through his spirit. Number eight, do you discern between spiritual truth and error? First John 4, 1 through 6. Do we know how to test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God? Number 10, do you experience the work, witness, and confidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you know what some call the Holy Spirit alarm system? Do you know the conviction that comes when you're not in obedience to God and his word? Number 11, have you ever suffered? That's 1 John 4, 11 through 21. Number 11, have you ever suffered because of your faith? 1 John 3, 12, 13. Do we ever experience the rejection or hate of the world because our deeds are righteous? Do we ever find ourselves in that situation? Number 12, have you ever been victorious because of your faith? 1 John 5, 4 through 5. Do we know the victory that comes from simply trusting God in his word, overcoming all things by the power of knowing Jesus is God? But the assurance that John's proclaiming here is more than just simple statements of fact. This goes way beyond just knowing that you're saved. It's a proclamation of the full understanding and life, eternal life. Remember 1 John 5, 13. The eternal life that comes from having that relationship, that knowledge of a relationship that brings assurance. If we contrast this to the Gospel of John, we can see the difference here. John, the Gospel, is written to all men that they might become believers. First John is written to believers, to us, who are Christians already. John is written to proclaim the historical elements of the truth of Christ. First John is written to proclaim the ethical implications of the truth of Christ. John proclaims the words and acts that prove Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. First John proclaims the words and acts that prove we are really his child, that we really believe the great truths of Christ. John, the gospel, proclaims the truth that we need to know absolutely and intuitively. First John proclaims the implications of that truth that we need to know in continuing learning experientially. Some things we know because of experience, don't we? Some things we know because we're taught those things. They're observable. They're, they're uh, just absolute. Uh, the illustration was mentioned earlier today about flying an airplane. I can study how to fly an airplane. I can learn how to fly an airplane. I can know all there is to know about flying an airplane. But isn't there a big difference in knowing that and being a pilot in the cockpit? There certainly would be if I'm going to be sitting behind him. So I want somebody who knows it not just absolutely and intuitively, but knows p 
piloting an airplane experientially through learning. Um, that's the key in 1 John. The word for know in 1 John is used 40 times. 40 times in the little book of 1 John, the verb for know is used. But 25 times, it's one root word that means one thing, and 15 times, it's another. In the original Greek, the, the root used 15 times is oida, which means intuitive, observable, absolute knowledge. The other is gnosko, which is used 25 times, meaning learn, continual, experiential knowledge. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, both are used there. And we know by absolute observation, absolutely, we know absolutely that the Son of God has come and given us understanding in order that we might know intuitively by experience Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Here again, the emphasis on a person being eternal life. I know who George Bush is. I know a lot about him. I can study and know more about him than most anybody in his family does. But I'll never know George Bush like Laura Bush does. Because she knows him experientially. She knows him through relationship. She knows him as it says in Genesis, and Adam knew Eve and she bore their first son. So what it really gets to here is not just knowledge, but knowledge that is relational, knowledge that brings about relationship. And so our assurance comes from that relationship. It is relationship with a person. As 1 John chapter 1, verse 4 says, and 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 says, eternal life is the person, Jesus Christ. So think about it this way. What does the enemy want us to have in this life? Even if we become Christians, the enemy still wants us to have certain things, right? He may not can keep us from heaven, but what? He'll want us to have misery, want us to have to be sinful, to enjoy his guilt, doubt, fear. So how does he do that? He attacks us by lying about the Savior, lying about sin, lying about our security in our salvation. What do we want from life? More importantly, what does God want us to have through this abundant life, this eternal life? Three principles. Back to the same thing. Joy, full and complete. Righteousness in daily living. That's forgiveness from sin, freedom from guilt. Assurance of relationship with the one true God. That results in eternal security and abundant life. We know truth in our minds. We obey commands in our wills. And we love others in our hearts. So what's all this point to? A growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just a static thing. Not something that happened at a point in time. We got our hell insurance. Now we can go home. You know, that's the way most people view salvation. They see it as a decision. They see it as an instant. They see it as like getting a hell insurance policy. And so now I'm set. Now I'm going about living my business the way I want to. But it is an ongoing, genuine, knowing relationship with Jesus Christ. Spiritual growth and maturity should be the norm, not the exception. I want to close with two points here. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Uh, I know today's Father's Day. 
And so I didn't forget that. I have a Father's Day's message, and I'm, so I'm going to start it now. <laughs> Y'all have to block the door if that happens. But, um, but seriously, look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Here is a message for everyone, but especially for us as fathers today. What does it say? 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his sake. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. So what do we see here? Three categories. What do the three categories represent? Spiritual maturity. Progression. We don't stay where we are in our relationship with the Father. Category number one is what? Little children. What do they know? They know the Father. They know their sins are forgiven. They know Daddy. They know Daddy loves them. And you know, and I don't mean that in belittling sense. That that's precious, and we all should begin with that step and and experience the maturity that comes even with that. But two is young men. What do they know? They know the word of God, and through that have overcome the evil one. Have you ever noticed as you grow in your relationship with Christ, you don't worry so much about Satan. You're more worried about pleasing God than you are that Satan's going to attack you. That's growth. That shows growth because you overcome Satan. How did Christ overcome Satan? By the power of the word. Sound doctrine gives you victory. And by the way, the word there for victory, it's on your tennis shoes or your shirts at home. Nike, Nakaho, overcome by victory. Overcome by the word. Category three, fathers. They know him who has been from the beginning. The most mature believers are not characterized by super deeds. Are they? Think of the most mature believers you know in your life. How would you characterize them? They know God, don't they? They know God. They have a real intimate relationship with God. They know him who has been from the beginning. They have a deep and abiding intimate knowledge of the eternal God. Their maturity is most seen in their knowledge of his divine attributes. So, and here again, all the words for know in this part of 1 John are those experiential, learning, growing knowledge words. Point two. So, before I leave that, would it be normal if a baby was born and he never grew? Would it be normal if a baby was born and he never matured mentally? No, that, that's a problem. A, a child cannot fulfill its adult purpose if it never matures. Likewise, we cannot fulfill God's purpose for us if we never mature in our spiritual progression, going from little children, young men, to fathers. Point two, who we are in knowing Christ should bring about a different way of living. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. What does it say? See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. 
Now let that statement sink in with you for just a minute. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. The intensity of this to me is uh, overwhelming. It's a very precious verse to me to consider and ponder when, especially if we look at the emphasis that comes from one word here. In the NAS, it says, see how great. In the King James, what does it say? It says, see what manner, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Or I think NIV is just how great, the same as NAS. Well, the root word there is an interesting word that's used in other places in the Scripture. But one that uh, I'll tell you about, you don't have to turn there. Matthew chapter 8, you all know the story. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus gets into the boat, disciples follow him, and a great storm rises on the sea. And they all came to, you know, he's sleeping. Jesus is sleeping because he's not worried. So the disciples wake him up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And, right, and of course, they settled down. And the men marveled, Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, what kind of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. The root word there that modifies what kind of man, the, the, the adjective that modifies man, translated what kind, is the same root we have here in 1 John 3, verse 1. The root word is a combination of two roots, potipus. The first one means what, just simply what, what is it. The second one, is, means soil or world. So think about that. What the word really means literally is what world? Like this is not from this earth. Where did this come from? Where did this man come from that he can speak and the winds and the sea obey his voice? Well, do you see how intense that makes this passage here in 1 John chapter 3? So the literal interpretation, go back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. The literal interpretation there is, where did this love come from? From what world is this love? What foreign, alien type of love is this that the Father has bestowed upon us? That we should be called children of God and such we are. Think about this. How odd is it when you really think about it? We are fallen, sinful creatures. And we are creatures. We are created. And yet God has bestowed upon us a love that makes us, that, that, give, that we are called the children of God. And we're not just called the children of God. We are. Why do we live as paupers? when we're children, not just of an earthly king, but we're children of the king of glory. Why do we deal with lack of assurance? Why do we do, and when I'm talking about dealing with it, you know, doubts that come into our minds, those are okay. Because we can dismiss those with the facts. That's what, what I hope God's word is arming us with today, is the facts. That if you're saved, you can dismiss those doubts. But the main thing is, 
don't miss out on the benefits of knowing that you're his, knowing that you're his child, and living, I mean, what a blessing it is to know that you're an American. You know, if, if you're in a foreign country and you're there visiting, isn't it a blessing to know that I am an American? I get to leave this place and go back to the home of the brave, the land of the free. So, what about here? What kind of love? Where did this love come from? We are aliens. We are not from this place. God has chosen us to be his children in eternity past, and that is our destiny. So why not live and think that way while we're here? Charles Spurgeon said this about assurance. Full assurance is not essential to salvation, but it is essential to satisfaction. Full assurance is not essential to salvation, but it is essential to satisfaction. May you get it. May you get it at once. May you never be satisfied to live without it. So today, if you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone, you can know that assurance. If you're not, then my plea to you is that you know that assurance that comes only through Christ and you turn in belief to Jesus and repent from trust in yourself. But to us as believers, 1 John's written to us as believers, may we know the full assurance that comes of our relationship with Jesus Christ in such a manner that we have that full joy, that we have that increasing obedience and decreasing sin, that we have that freedom from guilt and fear and the confidence that comes from the abundant eternal life of God. And may we do that in such a way that we have a growing, maturing faith, a growing, maturing relationship, progressing from little children to young men to fathers in the faith, and that we live in light of who we are, that think about the love that God has bestowed upon you Make it personal. Upon you, think of that today, that God has loved you such that you are called a child of God, and such you are. Michael Faraday was one of Britain's greatest scientists, and he contributed much to the field of electricity. I use it all the time. Many principles and laws and discoveries that Michael Faraday made are used in electricity by everybody today. He was always acting and dealing on presumptions. He had to check out presumptions and hypotheses to discover new principles. But at his death, someone came and asked him, Mr. Faraday, he was, when he was dying, he said, Mr. Faraday, what are your presumptions and hypotheses now? He replied, I do not entrust my head to presumptions at this moment, but to certainties. I do not entrust my head to presumptions at this moment, but to certainties. And then he quoted 2 Timothy 1.12. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed against that day. That is the full assurance that we need to have. We need to know who we have believed. And we need to know that he is able to keep that which we have entrusted to him and to guard that for us unto him against that day. 
So we're going to close by singing the next hymn. And that's the hymn that we call Blessed Assurance. And so as we sing it, thank God for His blessed assurance that He offers to use His child. And commit to live in such a way that you see that foretaste of glory divine.